Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Gaming Guru Podcast. As always, I'm joined by Tim Lester. My name is Gareth Woods. And today we're going to try something a little bit different. Uh, Tim and I have been looking at what we do here on the podcast and between the the memes and the banter and the saucy news bits, we really decided that the part we enjoy the most about the podcast is when we get into the real meaty discussion points. And we feel sometimes that you know, between all the fun and the laughs and the news bits that we don't really have enough time to, to sink our teeth into that. And so mm. what we want to try now on the podcast is to rather tackle one or two big topics um, and then land it with you guys and girls just to ask you what you feel uh, in that space and maybe we can take some of that feedback and i think if we had to kick off with the big kind of gaming topic at the moment is Mm. all the stuff that's going on at ubisoft and not only ubisoft but ubisoft as an example of maybe the kind of systemic problems that are happening in gaming so i'm gonna unleash the hounds here and tim has (laughs) done a lot of research and and give him a chance to kind of just give us a little bit context on for those of you who might not be aware what's happening and why we want to kind of jump into this topic tim your thoughts yeah so the gaming guru podcast obviously we're huge fans of games uh, including ubisoft games and a few weeks ago we covered ubisoft forward their um that, that would have been this it was the stand-in for their annual sort of presentation that they have at E3. We saw a whole bunch of awesome games, loads of fun, much hype. I myself got caught up into it. But a big story that was happening around the same time in the background, while everyone was talking about the next Viking game, was gross misconduct in the upper ranks of Ubisoft spanning years. So far. Um, key reporting coming out of Polygon, out of Bloomberg, around a dozen people have come forward with allegations ranging from rape, sexual misconduct, sexual assault, physical and verbal abuse, racism, homophobia across all of their studios. That would be uh, Ubisoft Bulgaria, their uh, Paris headquarters, as well as um, their Toronto HQ. Um, From the top down. So many of these stories have come around before but also sort of disappeared a lot of them have been gathering dust in the ubisoft's hr department of the accused we've got some big heavy hitters we've got editorial vp maxime baland who uh, choked out a female employee at a far cry event in a drunken rage we have a vp of editorial and creative services tommy francois who publicly pressured staff to sleep with him and amongst other unwarranted sexual advances Got a brand manager of Toronto known as Esco Blades who forced himself in another female executive. The list really does go on. Yeah. And then there were a couple of executives who threatened to leave the company if the allegations weren't dropped. Um, they have since left. These include CCO Sergei Hasiet, who uh, has been known to drug other employees without their consent. I think at one party he was lacing people's uh, food with marijuana you know some of us don't mind yeah. but some of us do <laughs> yeah, yeah of course. you know it's like you're having a good time and suddenly you're spinning you're like what's going on you've been spiked man yeah uh yeah and a, and a big one was the hr head cecily cornet um so their reporting suggests that a lot a lot of the reason how this a lot of the way that this culture managed to go, go on for so long is that hr wasn't really stepping in and doing its part and a lot of the time was protecting senior staff, covering up allegations, and just burying these things and they never get seen again. 
Um, and then also MD of Ubisoft Canada, Yanis Mallet, also threatened to leave. So really nasty stuff. Um, we, you know, we can put a we can put a trigger warning up there uh, for anyone who feels sensitive about these topics going forward. But we want to unpack it and sort of frame it in a in a way of you know, should we separate our opinion of a game from the business of making those games? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm glad you framed it that way because I don't want us to get onto the kind of me too train. You know, not that we don't support the the movement but i, I think that topic is uh, or at least that angle has been tackled uh enough times um and i don't think to be honest as as to white males we we have the credentials to perhaps you know speak on this mm. on this position yeah. but i think uh, what i what i'd love to try and tackle is as you said the separation between product and the means of getting it there you know if you mm. if you use the vegan example um you know, having chatted obviously anecdotally to the, f- the few vegans that I know, a lot of them don't have a problem with meat if there were a way of producing it outside of the way that it requires the death of animals to do so yeah. or the servitude of animals. You know, if they yeah. found a way to grow meat in a test tube, you know, as delicious as that sounds, they, they would be more okay with that than the current setup of, you know, animals being, you know, enslaved and under servitude and then eventually killed for you know essentially to feed us when plants do the exact same thing Mm. so i think what i'd like to get your thoughts on is how much of the ethical creation of games is important to the output of games you know yeah so i mean from let's say from my perspective right as a as a 30 something male who digs video games already as someone who has reported on um uh, on a whole variety of games that Ubisoft is bringing out in the next quarter, and I've you know got a couple down on my list. Now I'm taking a double a double take, and I'm thinking, you know, is this really a company that I want to be, you know, supporting with my bucks? We can use, you know, I like that meat industry example, and in the same vein, we can look at things like, you know, other brands that we support with our wallets, like Nike, for instance, a couple of years ago. Uh, came under fire from Greenpeace for using sweatshop labor to make their shoes. And Nike's original response at the time was, look, we're a shoe brand. We don't make shoes. We we sell them. We put our, put our name on it and sell it. But the way that the market has structured itself now, the way that brands and the things that we like are so integrated into our lives, you know, we're posting photos of of these of these brands where, you know, it's, it becomes a part of our identity. And the way that we use our wallet and spend our money needs to also reflect our values on on some level. And that's become a lot more apparent in the last 10 years hmm. to the point to the point of um, to the point of pressure, you know, pressure campaigns being being lobbied against these these major companies. And in many cases, you know, them having to take a step back and relook at their value chains and change the way they do things you know, at home in order to make sure that the end product doesn't carry that same that same weight. And I think it's about time that we kind of turn that discussion towards video games and not see it, you know, uh, as a vacuum, you know, and not play these games in a vacuum, understanding that the way that they're made is important. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think it's easier with a, um, a physical product you know, when you're going, the shoe that you are wearing 
is you know was created by you know child labor in you know a sweatshop in indonesia or you know, to create this margarine we had to i don't know chop down trees in the amazon to you know make farmland to for the cows to make the butter so like the it feels like there's a direct negative um process involved in the making of this game it always has this weird space when you get into like an art form you know what i mean because uh, and it's always this thing of of games and media and movies and music and all that about the fine line between it being a consumable commodity and an art form because how often and i'm not trying to talk about systemic you know racism or systemic uh, kind of sexual abuse but where a tortured artist creates amazing work and we almost are aware the fact that if yeah. not for the torture would the work not be as powerful or as emotive you know um you know maybe maybe i'm drawing too many uh <laughs> like separate parallels but like yeah. there is the space sometimes where you go um it's not like i'm starting to get to this the, the, this idea of, of someone going hmm, it's good but like i really feel like the artist is too happy like that it <laughs> it would have been better if you had just had this terrible childhood or like abusive relationships and you know you yeah. can really attest the abuse in in the quality of the work um is, is it the same you know is there the same correlation between a tangible product and an art form in terms of the link between the 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 means and the end Yeah yeah so so that's a great question and I think um the reason why this is important while we're highlighting this whether you know this type of uh, abusive work culture you know whether that changes your mind on whether you are going to be spending your money on these games coming out in the next couple months or not I think what's important to think about is how the games that we've already played by Ubisoft of the you know mm-hmm. over the last 10 15 years have been affected by this trickle down of a uh, toxic work workplace so mm. a good example might have been um Assassin's Creed Creed Syndicate which was you know famously has uh, two lead characters a male and female character it was meant to originally have a 50/50 split in terms of story between each character okay. and that got shaved down uh to about a 60 60 40 split between those characters um with the, what the male being the majority with the male with, yes with the male having the majority screen time assassin's creed odyssey uh, sorry excuse me assassin's creed origins uh was meant to have i don't know if you remember there's bayek of siwa and he has a wife aya yes, i believe yes and she makes she an appearance at some missions. point during the game yes she does yeah. the naval missions and she meets up with him at a couple times in the game Um now at at one point in the original story arc Bayek was meant to die and okay. the player would carry on the game as Aya you just take over with a different character That never happened Aya's role kind of got diminished over time until all we had was these naval sea battles mm. And then more recently as recent as Assassin's Creed Odyssey this game was only meant to have one female lead and because of this culture and the trickle down and pressure from various industry execs they wanted to make it so that you had a choice between either male or female lead which is cool oh, so, i'm all down so for when that you're, when you're saying only one female lead you mean the only lead would be female the only lead would be a female oh, okay. yes okay interesting in so game. no male character for the first time in an in an assassin's yep. creed game 
Like, yeah, that's that was the original the original vision. Um, and the the issue with kind of changing course and direction later stage in the game means that they can't really give as much time to characterization of you know, time to the characterization of like yeah. one protagonist. You know, they kind of have to mute a lot of the answers to make it seem like it could work for either character. Either way, yeah. It's so you, you, you have like a bit of a blank slate at the yeah. end of the day. So that's like one tangible example of the games that we've already played and we may not have known about or thought about this culture that affected our experience of it at the end yeah. product. You know? Yeah, 100%. And so I guess the question one needs to ask is that how does knowing this now then affect the decisions that you make? I mean, you get the example that you had you know, been super hyped with uh, Ubisoft Forward. You even wrote some articles about it, you know, explaining to people who missed the event what was happening, what they missed out on, what they can look forward to. And now, I'm not to say that like it puts a bit of taste in your mouth, but does one have the same level of excitement for those games knowing that, you know, they potentially are the products of a rather toxic work environment? Or does it well, matter me, at all? For me, definitely. For for And, and that's, you know, that's a big reason why I wanted to like, you know, pivot this discussion. I feel as though we have a responsibility to kind of highlight these if we're going to highlight the other stuff as well. You know, if we're okay. going to talk about the games, we've got to talk about how the games are made too. I think those kind of have to go hand in hand now. So, so it, it, it's definitely changed the way, it's definitely left a sour taste in, in my mouth. It's a case of, you know, um, those games are still going to be fantastic. <laughs> You know, yeah. but it's like when you order the veal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I was, I was just thinking an example like... now of like, there, there are people who might not be vegan, but they will always buy, like as a meat eater, they'll always buy free range because they believe that yeah. the animals that are free range are treated better. And so it almost gets to the stage of going, I want to know that my games are free range or fair trade or whatever the, you know, the term food. will be. Yeah, you know, that all my... <laughs> If you've met any developers, you know a lot of them are grass-fed, but um, it's it's which is probably why one of them was lacing the food with with marijuana. But anyway, um, besides that, it's it's the idea that knowing that this game came from a place that you know everyone was looked after and ideals were shared. And as I'm saying that, I'm kind of feeling a little bit kicked in the balls by Ubisoft always having that disclaimer on their games. Yeah. I mean, I can't remember the exact wording. But it was always something along the along the lines of um, this game has been created by a diverse group of people from various races, cultures, creeds, and genders, um, mm. and basically, you know, almost like a, you know, we can't be held accountable for any racism, sexism, or xenophobia because you know we've got black people and white people and asian people all yeah. working in the same company and everyone is treated fairly like and everyone gets know. abused a fair amount yeah everyone gets abused yeah. the same amount you know yeah yeah i mean how does that make you feel the fact that they out of all companies i'm thinking now we're probably yeah. the, the, most the, the only one who like, have that they're the most boy scouty about like you know we are pc yeah. and protect everyone and yeah it's sort of like um, I I sort of think of it as um, like corporate inclusion, you know, uh, and 
you know, Yves Germaud, the CEO of, of, of Ubisoft, was asked recently about these allegations and what his response to that would be. Because one of three one of three things is happening here. Either he knew about the misconduct and just didn't do anything about it, or he knew about some of it and and a lot was just outside of of his yeah. scope so like or a he knew about none of it thing as opposed to totally. dealing it as a systemic thing or he knew about none of it and he's completely oblivious to what happens under his roof but and his response to honest, it, the bad the bad apples one you know if we take like uh yeah. how the cops normally deal with these sort of situations with you have a, a xenophobic shooting or yeah. you know so you know black lives matter type you know incident you've got the normal um bad apples analogy you know going mm. the majority of them are good apples but you know we got one or two bad ones and so we'll sort them out individually but there's not a it's not a bad apple factory we're running here or we have a bad apples come a bad apple yeah. orchard I, the problem arises when that bad apple is like the you know the chief content officer when it's literally your line manager and above and then when you know your department hosts a party and that line manager is like, we're getting strippers, you know, and, <laughs> you know, when the behavior is coming down from management, that's when it becomes a problem because that's when it becomes encouraged and it starts seeping into, you know, the people around them because yeah. I don't know. And I don't know if you've been in a workplace like that. I mean, wh whether it was at school or because um, the Bloomberg article described it as, um, uh, through uh, through the testimony of people who came forward as the, a frat house. And okay. if you think about the quintessential sort of like TV frat house with dudes just going wild and, and you know, acting like it's a, you know, like it's a party in the Bahamas, yeah. you know, like, and, and if you have that coming down from the top, you start to get a behavioral value system where those types of behaviors are valued higher because you're mirroring you're mirroring mirroring yes you're mirroring your 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 line managers and you're mirroring management and and that's where i think a big a big problem comes in because if you want to then push back against that you're you're pushing against the foundations of your social culture within an organization yeah i and think that's the one how thing is, things get yeah, yeah get out of control i, I think as well is why it's so toxic when it comes from the top is that you've got a hiring culture generally where you are bringing people from lower levels up to your level and so mm. what that always is going to do is protect the status quo so if you've got toxicity at the top um, and like you say a frat house environment i mean let's be honest i mean i i was at a res environment um which is i suppose as similar as south african universities have to a frat house but it's the idea that the leadership is voted in by the um, by the senior uh, elements of the of the the residents, and so there's always this kind of thing of protecting a status quo. It's the same in a corporate culture where, like, you've got your hundred level ones, and then the twenty managers, and then the five execs, and the one CEO. They are all trying to emulate those above them because if yeah. someone comes at the junior levels and is, you know, suddenly like trying to bring down the status quo and you know you know break the machine and you know take it to the man 
they're not going to fit in and then they're not going to be elevated to the next level because they don't fit yeah. in and so that's what's so much more dangerous when the toxicity comes to the top i mean these names that you were mentioning it's all like head of hr mds ccos yep. it's like the, the acronyms that that matter you know that have their names on the on the door of the building usually and yes. so if they're the ones being implicated it starts feeling like um you know the bad apples are influencing those beneath them to kind of be part of the structure i mean as you said the the, the hr head uh, and i'm bad with french names but cecile you know i presume mm. is a is a female name um yes. while she might not have been involved in you know her own actions of of um of sexual misconduct the fact that you know she would have a hand in protecting the boys club from yes. you know facing any consequences is in a lot of ways as bad as as the as the acts themselves mm. because you know these would be the the people you would complain to if you were being harassed or treated unfairly or having your food drugged and they're going you know oh, don't worry about it we're just having fun and you know laugh it off and you know it shouldn't shouldn't yeah. matter yeah I- I think the big takeaway here is also like this type of systemic toxic culture doesn't happen overnight. It mm-hmm. takes a very long time, like years and years of small microaggressions and misconduct, like just going under the radar. And and because those small things get allowed, bigger things get allowed. And as soon as bigger mm-hmm. things get allowed and get through the cracks, then when someone comes forward and says, you know, look, um, Cecile, uh Sergey like you know grabbed my ass at the staff function on Friday and I didn't know what to do about it but I thought I'd just go through the proper chains come to you chat about yeah. it and Cecil Cecil will be like okay cool don't worry we'll like you know we'll make uh, a meeting we can chat about this uh we'll we'll put it in the file but don't yeah. worry you know it happens all the time like <laughs> yeah, exactly you're not like, the first yeah. you know it's and you won't be the and last it's supposed to make like, you feel better but it makes you feel much exactly, worse exactly you know yeah. this is totally normal you know what i mean yeah. it gets normalized it gets normalized yeah. and so you know uh this this lady who comes through to Cecile and it's like oh you know i got you know i got grabbed on the behind and another girl was like oh that's nothing you know yeah. um i got choked yeah so you know don't go wasting hr's time with that because i still yeah, haven't, so we only, you know had my with, you know yeah we only deal with chokes or, or worse you know like well exactly so so that's how you kind of create this totem pole of of bad behavior that just kind of can can just get so badly out of hand to this this huge brand issue that uh, ubisoft is is sitting with now but i think the big question that we need to get to is considering all of this like how will this impact the way that we spend our money yeah because at the end of the day we need to if it is important to you because i mean let's be honest for a lot of people they just want to play the games they are not invested enough in the process i mean if we take the meat example there are a lot of people who know the details of how you know meat is created and how you know inhumane it can be and don't care because they're like i like the taste too much to to care to change but there are also people who just don't know they mm. they i mean heck they're, they're people who don't even know the review scores on games they are not invested in the journalism or the media side of games they're like i buy call of duty every year i buy fifa every year i don't care if it's created by racists or not like i just want to play the same soccer game i played last year with a higher number it's just um do you think this knowledge is going to have any real impact on the majority of gamers i know you've said it impacts you as someone who like you know for one 
uh, has it feels like some sort of like social conscience about this sort of thing, but also um, you know it takes the time to investigate this. I mean, you spend a decent amount of time investigating all these stories. It is it's interesting to you, but mm. you know what is your feeling about the majority of gamers? You know, uh, Carl and his monsters. You know, his six pack of monsters on a Friday night. Like, do you think <laughs> it's going to impact him in any way? Uh, I. The sad truth is that I don't think it will. It seems like the the games community uh, at large, I'd say the the wider arm of of the the gaming community uh, has doesn't think about or at least doesn't put that much stock into the the way that their product is made unless, you know, Let's okay. Let's say let's let's use the example of uh, what happens when the gaming community does react to something they don't like. Okay. It seems that the go-to uh, tactic would be review bombing a game that they haven't played, um, and that started with Steam, moved its way over to um, to Metacritic. Metacritic have now had to change their review policies in order to kind of skirt this from happening. Yeah. You know. But it's a weird thing. It's it's kind of like, you know, breaking the sign of a shop, you know, because because you didn't like the the color of the the can that they sold you, you yeah. know, and then getting all your other friends to do the same thing. Yeah, and, you and, and I'm wondering if the there's can, yeah. like, and I'm wondering if there's a space or at least a need for uh, for for someone else to step into into the space, right? Uh, like taking it back to the Greenpeace campaign, you know, there are so many, um, so many NGOs and and other non-government actors who are weighing in on on issues like the meat industry, the shoe industry, and all sorts of all sorts of things. You know, should we have something like that for games? Is there a space for yeah. organized pressure campaigns that goes beyond just you know? Uh, leaving a bad review score on on someone's metacritic board which at the end of the day isn't really going to change this company's share price because ubisoft is beholden to their shareholders and their stakeholders at the end of the day and us as gamers we are stakeholders we are people who are looking to them and you know wondering about the next product we're prospective buyers Yeah, I think you you hit a good note there, uh, one with the union sort of question, because I think that's been one that's been on the cards in terms of discussion for a long time is a lot of these problems created because you've got, I won't say a bunch of kids, but you've got a bunch of passionate gamers who feel like they are perhaps taken advantage of because, and I'm talking about people who work at these companies, because um, I don't know, maybe the, the employers are levering t- leveraging too much on the idea of, oh man, these guys like they're just they're working in their dream field, and so yeah. th- they would never want to jeopardize working at. I mean, even myself, it's just a gamer, a little kid here in South Africa. The chance to work at an EA or an Ubisoft or whatever would be life changing. It would be this kind of like mm. fulfillment of a long term like dream in the gaming industry you know even if they you know as the janitor or whatever it wouldn't matter because you'd feel like part of a team of people that because you've especially the bigger one the bigger uh, developers you've been through so many journeys with them 
um, you, in a lot of ways, feel even more in touch with them than, you know, God, if you had to work for a big company that made your favorite soup or your favorite, like, oh, I've been having the soup for the last 30 years, you know, and I'd finally get to work as the brand manager of, at Soupco. It's not the same as like being a gamer who now finally gets to make the games that can change the new generation of kids playing them. It's like, I think that is leveraged so hard as this yeah. kind of like it is you know ability to treat and, people like shit you know yeah and, and and i mean i'm sure we're gonna we're gonna unpack like more of these issues you know in the pod going forward like crunch culture and mm. the same can be said for i don't want to broaden it you know too much the same can almost be said for the conversation around microtransactions in that you yeah. know a couple not too long ago we were like guys you know games actually they're pretty expensive to make we gotta we gotta buy these microtransactions i mean otherwise how a game is gonna these these game developers gonna eat you know how can they pay rent unless we're <laughs> unless we're buying loot boxes dude Meanwhile, and like that yeah. was that was a talking point yeah. that was you know in circulation and it was something that that myself as well as you know many of my friends and colleagues believed until the reporting really starts to highlight you know how these corporations because they really yeah. are billion billion dollar corporations um, make use of these assets slash resources slash human beings yeah okay so then i guess if systemically part of it is that these employees are not protected that they are abused because they are felt like they're so lucky to be in this opportunity and we see it with things like you know boys and girls who want to be actors um gamers who get into esports teams and are treated like garbage because they you know they're just so lucky to be in a professional team and work in a gaming house meanwhile i mean how many stories do you have like allegations of fraud and non-payment and all sorts of stuff there um but then externally like so on our side where we can actually do something about it you you hinted on the um the fact that they're corporations and the end of the day review bombs don't matter because i mean uh, look, I was a fan of The Last of Us too, but it did get review bombed, and it seemed to yeah. come out of that entire thing pretty unscathed from a financial point. I think yeah. some of the actors took a lot of abuse, the voice actors took a lot of abuse, the writers took a lot of abuse, like artists, everyone took abuse on social media from people who you know often didn't play the game because they were all part of this like um, you know this tirade of review bombing and you know social media scorn and all that. But at the end of the day, the stats showed it until Ghost of Tsushima passed it was the top selling PlayStation exclusive of all time. So mm -hmm. it's like the shareholders are going, hmm, it's a good thing we did that incredibly, like, you know, for some people, controversial thing because, mm -hmm. you know, look at the results. And so, in the same way, if a um, Ubisoft, let's keep the, the current example, has done nefarious things in the background and produces a game that has now caused it to be part of the the talk and the pr cycle and that's caused people to review bomb it knowing that review bombs don't do anything and in fact keep it as a talking point yeah. are they in any way incentivized to change that culture except from a real kind of like corporate whitewashing point of view in terms of like we're making sure. changes everyone we're making changes look we employed this person and we've reformed this person and we punished that person by giving them you know a massive severance package that they'll never have to work a day in their life but you know like <laughs> we've gotten rid of the bad apples um and and now we're all fine but meanwhile they actually haven't done anything because they're in no way incentivized to change the culture yeah if if it's like in the pr cycle the games are selling um yeah 
Exactly. Your thoughts on that? No, I think all, all great points. And and I want to kind of stick on this PR cycle point because I think the media have a big role to play in this. You know, because gaming companies, developers, corporations, games journalism, media, there's a there's a, a relationship there that goes back many, many years. And in the same way that you have you're privileged to you know, work at an Ubisoft or, you know, a Bioware, for instance, you're also privileged to be a games journalist who gets, you know, review copies, who gets access, who's thought yep. favorably, you know, and if there's so many outlets who just don't want to risk that, you know, yep. holding these people to account means you might not be, you, you might not get a package from them next time they're sending out review copies. Yeah, to, or trip, to free trips to E3 and Gamescom and, you know, you know, trips around exactly. the world to so, exclusive previews and yeah yeah so it's i feel as though there needs to be a bigger responsibility on on journalists actually covering the way that these games are made and and okay. and looking at these deeper issues because it can't just be you you can't just you know, review an Assassin's Creed, you know, Valhalla and say, this game was great, you know, eight out of 10 without, without seeing how it got to where it got to and where it came from. And if we have this, and if we have this relationship where games journalists are constantly trying to impress the, um, you know, the PR agent at, uh, you know, at Ubisoft or EA, for example, in order to ensure that their, you know, that their name is still in the list and they haven't been blacklisted for the next, you know, quarter or cycle, you know, then how can we really like have like a meaningful discussion there, you know, because mm, these people exactly. are acting more as PR agents than they are as journalists. Yeah, and I think that the problem sometimes is that the relationship is often held with the PR companies. So I think locally, mm -hmm. for an example, um, you know, you get sent your games copies from, you know, PR companies. And so obviously they're looking for positive spin and they're looking for good reviews. And I think, yeah, if I'm honest, like the, if you've got a good relationship with a PR company, it doesn't matter if you, if you slate the game, if, if that's a, a, a known yeah. opinion about, you know, XYZ issue, I think, um, you know, you skirt the line there in terms of feedback on the game versus feedback on the process of the game. You know, if I read a review of a game, I want to know what the game's like. Now you're, you're almost pushing the responsibility of the, the reviewer to also become some sort of investigative journalist where they need to, you know, also tell you that the games are ethically made and that everyone is treated fairly and, you know, that, yeah, it's it's tough. I think it's, it's a big onus to put on, on a reviewer who, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, they they have their opinion based on their experience as a um, a game player, not um, yeah. as as an ethics major or a you know Truth. political science expert. So mm. it's difficult because I mean, then it, it you know begs the question: whose onus is it? Is there yeah. is there any third party onus? Is it purely the company's onus to make sure that they um, you know keep their their patch of grass clean? Is it some sort of union that protects uh, the, the 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 employees, or is there some sort of third-party journalist body that needs to, you know, be a watchdog and keep people alert to these things? Yeah. And I suppose most of all, does it actually matter at the end of the day 
to you know the sales of games and therefore the gamers that's i mean i don't think we're going to be able to answer this here we, we're probably going to leave with more yeah. questions than, than answers but but i guess the question i guess we want to leave maybe we can tease it out here a little bit and perhaps it's something for an entire new podcast is going do we like to just complain about things but then we don't really act on them financially you know what i mean so like we like to complain so i mean we'll review bomb and we will um you know attack people on social media and we'll say all sorts of things about how we're not supporting this game i mean use the microtransaction examples we complain about microtransactions basically since the birth of microtransactions and even with it's like i won't say it's death but it's undeath at the moment uh, we <laughs> kind of exists in in very weird uh, kind of reskinned formats but like the fact of the matter is you look at the top grossing games every month and they generally have some sort of microtransaction component and so you're going is it that people like to complain with their mouths and their keyboards and then support with their wallets or is it that there is this silent majority that actually doesn't care and just continues business yeah. as usual and then there's this yeah. very vociferous like vocal minority that's like picketing and you know you know burning down yeah. like you said um shops and all that but like they're a drop in the ocean they just make more noise so yeah. we feel like it's a big issue no gee that yeah those are some uh, fantastic points and i want to come back to to what you said about um you know, potentially having uh, pressure groups, you know, a watchdog sort of um, journalist uh, grouping, and then also unions on the side. I mean, look at any industry. I don't see any industry where those don't exist. You can look at retail, you can look at hospitality, at, um, you know, at, at the mining industry, for instance. And because the games industry has gotten to such a huge place publicly, and in our uh, private lives, the form of biggest form of entertainment. These spaces need to start being occupied, and they already have been. We've got um, there's a developers union that pushes back against crunch and is seeking legislation to uh, for the government to to step in and assist in 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 these kind of um, uh, workplace uh, rules. We have some great reporting coming out of people like Jason Schreier, out of Kotaku, Polygon, that go into these types of stories that we're covering, you know, today and on the pod. And I don't think it'll be long before we see pressure groups starting to step in and fill the gap where, you know, gamers have kind of fallen short with their keyboard warrior antics. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I think um, certainly something I want to investigate for a future pod, um, the idea that you know how much complaining we do versus the impact it has financially um, on on those companies. Like you said, most of them are massive publicly sh- um, traded companies, and so public outcry should have an impact on shareholder kind of sentiment and therefore the value to the yeah. company. But um, I don't know if that's the case. I, I could shoot from the hip and give my thoughts on it, but I'd, I'd like to do a bit of research. So obviously, a, a topic I'd like to tackle in the future. Um, yeah, I think. Um, I've enjoyed the, the new direction of the podcast. I hope the, the listeners have as well. Uh, it's something we'd like to continue. If you have any topics you'd like us to tackle, please do let us know on Twitter via at guru underscore podcast. Otherwise, you can contact Tim directly at Tim and the Fish on Twitter. And I am at the Gareth Woods. Always happy to hear the comments. Uh, thanks so much for those who do 
uh, and let us know your thoughts and we will be back next week with another tasty topic on the gaming group podcast cheers for now adios